ever got a chance to do, but that just fascinates me. Uh, I've watched like roughly two million YouTube videos about this, but it's like blacksmithing and like in specific knife making. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. I just like watch somebody do it. I'm just like, it's so amazing. How do they make it happen, you know? It's just fascinating to me, that whole process. And I think one of the coolest parts about it is seeing the transformation from this random, like, hunk of metal into this, like, incredibly useful tool, right? Um, and it's something totally different in the end than it was in the beginning. And it never would have become something different without the blacksmith changing it, without him making it, it different. And I think it's all the more impressive when you look at the final product and you remember it began as like a rusty saw blade or like a dull file or like some random pair of scissors or something, like some hunk of random metal, right? And you look at it at the end and it is a finely crafted tool used by a chef or used by um, a, a craftsman in some way, shape or form for a very specific and, and important purpose, right? <clears throat> See, if you take a dull knife and you sharpen it, like, okay, cool, well, it works better. It was still a knife, right? You take a rusty, like, you take a, a ro like a railroad spike and you turn that into, like, a sword or something, like, that is dramatically different, right? That is, like, really impressive when you see that happening. You see, remembering what something used to be really changes the way that you look at it now, Right? When you remember what something used to look like, it really changes the way that we look at it now. That's exactly what's going on in our passage this morning. See, Paul is reminding the readers, uh, the church in Ephesus, he's reminding them who they were without Jesus. And then he reminds them of who they are now because of Jesus. And that transformation is incredible. Like it's like the rusty railroad spike to a katana, kind of impressive, right? And you might be thinking, that sounds a lot like last week. Like, we kind of talked about all the same stuff last week in the first part of chapter 2. We did. Yeah, we did. Right? <clears throat> but the gospel is like a diamond, right? And a diamond has like a gajillion different facets. And whenever you rotate it, it sparkles in a new kind of way, right? And this morning, as Paul is going to be speaking to us about the, about like just as we look at who we were and who we now are, it's like he's just rotated the, that, the gospel diamond just a bit. And he's showing us a different facet of how, good, of how good the news really is about the gospel. And in the words of my wife, it's real sparkly, right? So <clears throat> let's read the passage and see what's in there and uh, see if we can't uh, make sense of what's going on so that we might enjoy and treasure Jesus and live for him. So uh, you can join me here. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and were called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Ow! That, like, just turn the knife and just, right? It says, verse 13, good news, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, he is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting it aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose for doing all that, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here's the end. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, no longer strangers, but rather you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone for it's in him the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and it's in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Man, God, I just pray like you would just remind us of like how good the good news really is this morning. Show us how great that transformation is so that we might treasure and enjoy you, God. Amen. Amen. So um, last week, uh, we talked about, uh, we said that Paul was addressing everyone, all humanity, right? When he said at the beginning of chapter two that we were dead in our sins, that we were enslaved to our sins, and that we were condemned without Jesus, right? And we really clarified that message is to everyone, to all people, right? This morning, as we look at this passage, Paul kind of narrows that description a little bit, a little bit further, and he's speaking here specifically to Gentiles. And Gentiles is you—it's anyone who's not Jewish, right? So that would include most likely everyone here, right? See, it's it's important here for us to understand kind of the the clarity with which Paul is articulating what he's talking about. See, if the bad news from last week wasn't bad enough. Paul adds five more nails in the coffin of our spiritual deaths, right? And all of these things, it's really important to see, all of these things are not primarily about our separation from God. They're primarily about our separation from people, right? And it's specifically from being a part of God's people. There is a vertical reconciliation between man and God that the gospel addresses, right? But this morning, we're going to take a look at kind of the horizontal reconciliation that happens, right? Between men and women and between, between everyone, right? So the passage begins, right? And it says, you are separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God, Ow, right? Like, you might be thinking, like, I just remember, like, reading that, like, okay, Paul, like, slow your roll. We get it, dude. Like, we're in bad shape. Okay, right? But I think for Paul's words to really hit us, like, as they are intended to this morning, we need to kind of take a short trip down memory lane, and uh, maybe not memory lane, but uh, down history lane, I suppose, right? And take a look at, like, what is this division between the Jews and the Gentiles, and why is that such a big deal here, right? I think we'll fully understand more what's going on here. So in order to understand that relationship between Jews and Gentiles, right, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, right? And so we're going to be here for the next 47 hours straight, and we're going to go through the whole... So we got to go back to Genesis chapter 12, right? And in Genesis chapter 12, God promises a guy named Abraham, right, that he is going to be the father of a great nation, right? And this nation is going to be God's people, they're going to be his chosen people, and he's going to bless them. He's going to be for them. He's going to fight for them. He's going to be on their side. And really keyly, it's 
that he is also going to use this nation in order to bless all of the nations of the world, right? It's not a selectivity for the sake of like setting up, just like glorying in and being special. It's a selectivity that's intended to like reach out towards others. Since the hour that God called Abraham, God made a difference between Jews and Gentiles. His relationship with his people was really special, incredibly privileged. And I think, unfortunately, like we do all the time, right? Um, the Israelites took for granted that special privileged relationship that they had with God, and they forgot how undeserving and how unworthy they were of, the, of, the, of that privilege. You see, this divide between uh, Jews and Gentiles, it wasn't small, it wasn't like just a petty thing. It was, it was deep and complex, and it wasn't simple. See, the divide was, it was religious, it was cultural, and it was even racial, right? The Jews knew and worshipped the one true God, whereas the Gentiles worshipped an innumerable amount of gods. The Jews had lots of ceremonies and religious practices like circumcision or dietary regulations or rules of cleanliness. And all of these things were set in place by God for the purpose of showing that his people like revealed a, a radical kind of holiness, right? Because they represented him. And the things that they were supposed to do were intended to set them apart so that they would show the world what God was like. And to top it all off, it's like a bloodline kind of feud, Right? Because at the root of this distinction between Jews and Gentiles is a lineage that goes back to Esau and not back to Isaac. It's a lineage that goes back to Ishmael, not, um, goes to Isaac, not to Ishmael. And it's a lineage that goes back to Abraham, not any other father. So this divide between Jews and Gentiles is like massively huge, right? In fact, there was actually a literal like straight up a literal wall in the temple, right? That separated where people who were Jewish could go and worship God and where people who were Gentiles could go, right? No matter what you believed or if you were like, you know, like if you were a Gentile, like you could not go past this wall, right? And archaeologists have actually found an inscription when they were kind of excavating this old, old temple, right? It says, no foreigner may enter within this barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and its closure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Right? Like, the wall was like a big deal, right? The division between Jews and Gentiles was not just like a, I don't really like you, stay off my turf. Like, it was like deep-seated division, right? See, Tragically, as one commentator writes, Israel forgot their vocation. They forgot their purpose. They forgot their job, right? And they twisted their favorite, they twisted their privileged position as God's people into one of favoritism. And instead of loving the people God had sent them to reveal himself to, they despised everyone else. It was like a deep-seated hatred towards others. Paul references this disdain in verse 11, right? When he says, you who were called the uncircumcised by those who were called the circumcision, right? They're not just like remarking about a physiological thing, right? That's like a we're better than you taunt, right? It's like a we're in the club, you're not, we're better than you, so like deal with it, right? Paul's tone in the letter reveals that he thinks like that's like pretty stupid and worthless, right? <laughs> That that's not actually like how they should be thinking. He's just describing like, here's what's going on in this division, right? 
You see, instead of seeing their privileged position as a blessing to be stewarded and graciously expanded towards others, they became proud and self-righteous and arrogant. They missed the whole mission. They missed the whole purpose of what they were supposed to be. And it created this incredible rift of, of hatred and conflict amongst these two groups. And it's into this like deep-seated uh, like divide that the apostle Paul writes these incredible words about reconciliation <laughs> happening. I can guarantee you there is no Jew or Gentile that thought, oh, one day I think we're going to be cool with each other. Like there's, no, there's nobody who thought that, right? And so the Apostle Paul is writing something to these people that's like crazy talk, right? It's not something they would have understood or they would have heard or had context for. Paul writes, as one commenter says, you were Christless and stateless and friendless and hopeless and godless. Paul's words, you were far off. Verse 13 though, right? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. See, once we were hopelessly far from God, but we've been brought near to him by Jesus. In verse 17, it says, he came and preached peace to those who were far away. This is the fulfillment of a promise God made all the way back in, in Isaiah where he said, I will come and I will put praise on their lips. I will preach peace, peace to those who are far and near, and I will heal them, says the Lord. God is like making good on his promises. <clears throat> so how did he do that, right? How did we who were far off, how did we become near? The passage is super clear. That happened because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 13 says, you who were formerly were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Verse 15, he abolished the division by, with, and its enmity with his flesh. Verse 16, and he would <clears throat> reconcile both of them into one body through the cross. <clears throat> you see, it's the blood of Jesus. His sacrificial death in person actually happened on the cross for our sins, that's what brings us near to God. I was far off from God. God brought me near. You have been far off from God, and God is longing that he would bring you near as well. It's not because of something that we did. You, like, notice in the passage, there is no, and you were awesome, so therefore I decided to fix you, right? Like, and you performed so greatly, so like you earned <clears throat> this happening. There's nothing about our actions at all. It just says you hated each other. God decided that he would end that because he loved you. It has nothing to do with us. It's not our performance or our actions, so we don't earn it. Therefore, it means we don't mess it up. There is a security that happens in that. John Stott says, this new nearness to God, which all Christians enjoy, this incredibly privileged position, far too often we take for granted. I think that we take that for granted because uh, we don't grasp the magnitude of how much it cost. And we don't understand like the enormity of the benefits, right? We're like a little kid who's never seen a car before and is given the keys to a Ferrari, right? There's no idea how much it costs. He has no idea what it can do. And we don't understand how amazing it really is. We just look blindly on something that we don't understand. And so Paul, throughout the passage, is saying, remember, 
take note, remember who you were. It changes how you look at who you are now. You see, Jesus' death on the cross for us, it didn't just reconcile us to God, but it reconciled mankind to one another, right? Jesus says he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Remember that physical wall that we talked about earlier? The spiritual implications of that wall, right, were destroyed in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, on our behalf. This is just incredible. One commentator says this. I just, this is so fascinating. See, the dividing wall of hostility, which has broken down, symbolized a, an alienation from God. And it symbolized an alienation from God's people. But both literally and historically speaking, that wall that we talked about, it wasn't destroyed for another 30 or 40 years. So for 40 years, that wall was standing. It was still surrounding the temple, still excluding Gentiles. And while Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, that wall, that physical wall is actually there. And Paul is saying, even though that wall is there, spiritually it's already been destroyed long ago in Jesus. It still stood, but it was already antiquated, obsolete, out of date. For as far as the spiritual meaning went, the sign still stood, but the thing it signified was destroyed. And that's all because of Jesus. His dividing wall was destroyed, and in so Jesus brought peace. It's for, in verse, seven, or verse 16, I think he says, for he himself is our peace, and who's made the two groups one. John Piper writes, to dwell on our reconciliation with God is important. We should do it. It's precious beyond measure, but we need to also dwell on the fact that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile all peoples together as well. See, there is a horizontal reconciliation that happens because of the gospel. It's enabled by our vertical reconciliation with God. And God did that in order to create a brand new people for himself with a brand new identity. And that new identity was to, in order to give them an incredible purpose. And they could never live out that identity and that purpose that God had given them without the new identity. Verse 19, it says, so you used to be foreigners and strangers, now you're citizens. You used to have no rights and no privileges, you used to be on the outside. And now you are a citizen of God with full rights and full privileges as a citizen. More than that, you're not just citizens of God's kingdom, in fact, you are actually uh, members of God's household. We don't just have a spot in the kingdom. We have a seat at the king's table. It's not just a seat that is a privileged position. It's a seat because we're his kids. We have an incredible new identity, and it's capped off in verses 21 and 22. It says, we are rising to become a holy people in the Lord, a holy temple in the Lord. See, the purpose of the temple was to be a dwelling place for God. In the Old Testament, all the sacrifices and rituals, all of the religious practices that happened, they all happened in the temple because that's where God was. God lived among his people and he met with them through the temple in order to show them that he cared about them and in order to show them that he loved them, right? But now because of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, God dwells with us. It's not a building or a place by which God shows his great love for us. It's actually that he would live in us, his people. Like that is an incredible privilege and honor. 
Picture this. In Ephesus, there stood a magnificent temple to the goddess Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the great ancient world, right? And at the center of that temple, there was a statue to her, right? In Jerusalem, many miles away, right? There was a temple. And for centuries, that temple in the very center was the dwelling place of God. One commentator writes this. Two temples, one pagan, the other Jewish, each a divine residence, both empty of the living God. For now there is a new temple, a new dwelling place in his spirit. It's this new society, his new people scattered throughout the world. They are his home on earth. They will also be his home in heaven. That place which held incredible importance was, was, was removed All of the divisions that came from God's dwelling coming from a place were removed because God now dwells with his people no matter where they are. That brand new identity can never come without Jesus' life and death on our behalf. And so when we look at the good news of the gospel, right, we need to remember we were alienated and instead of being remaining that way, we've been reconciled. And it's Jesus who has brought us home to be with him. Do you remember the chorus of chapter one? Repeated on and on, it said, God did all of these things for the praise of his glory. God did all of this, redeemed and renewed. He reconciled man to himself and enabled a reconciliation between mankind. He did that so he would get all of the praise for doing something impossible without him. And so as his people, right, we need to remember, right? Three times in the beginning of this passage, Paul says, remember. We need to remember all that God has done for us and that we would live in response to him. God's the only one that can show you like the magnitude of his work on your behalf. That's not something you just learn about. It's not something you just read and have more facts about. Like, God has to reveal that to you. He has to show it to you in a way that matters to you, right? I would just invite you like, man, ask him to do that. Ask him to show you how incredibly good news the gospel is. Ask him to cause your heart to treasure it and enjoy it as you should. See, some of you might need to receive God's work on your behalf for the very first time still so that you would even have a reason to live for him, right? You might be still far off. Jesus longs that you would let him bring you near to him. While we take communion, while we worship, like, talk to God about that, right? He longs to talk with you. He longs to meet with you. As God's people, we don't just remember all that he did for us. We remember as well that in Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility between mankind was destroyed. And so we join Jesus in the work of reconciliation. That's why as Christians, we need to care about justice and racial diversity and, the, and the, the reconciliation of all peoples. That's why we care about those things because the God of the universe cared enough about them. That he would send his son to die so that peoples might be reconciled back to one another. It's not just like a new hip social thing that Christians have started caring about. It's something God cared about from the very beginning and called his people to join him in caring about. I think sadly what's happened in our Christian churches is that we have uh, 
instead of remembering all that Jesus has destroyed in the divisions, we just keep putting up our own walls. Whether those are social or racial or economic or who knows what else. One commentator says this, it is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by his cross has abolished these old divisions and created a new humanity in love while at the same time contradicting our own message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers that the church puts up. Those things are divergent things. We cannot miss this though. This is like just really, really key, right? The reconciliation that we have with God and the, the reconciliation that we have with people is not possible apart from God. I think a lot of times what's happened, uh, especially as of late in kind of Christendom, is that these kind of social issues which be, have become popular in kind of the context of our culture have just been kind of annexed a, into Christian culture, right? And instead of um, being something that we care about because God deeply cares about it, we just kind of care about it because the world thinks it's good to care about those things. And what happens is pursuing reconciliation amongst racial divides or amongst social divides or amongst economic divides has become the end goal. And if we would just have reconciliation between these things, then, then that would be the end. And Paul is just saying like, that's not the end. That's a, that's a result. That's what happens when people are reconciled to God. They're reconciled to one another. It doesn't happen without Jesus. And so as God's people, for us to care about those kinds of things means that we need to first care most about people's reconciliation to God. Because we do no good for anyone if they have friendship across divisive lines but are still an enmity with God. We cannot forget the gospel. Just one more quote before I end. commentator says this it is a failure to recognize the gravity of the human condition which explains people's which explains people's naive faith in superficial remedies universal education is highly desirable laws administered with justice incredibly valuable both of those are pleasing to god who is the creator and righteous judge of all mankind but neither either of those things can rescue human beings from the spiritual death which plagues us a radical disease requires a radical remedy and we shall not on that account give up the quest either to better our education or to pursue a more just society. No, but we shall add to those things a new dimension to which those who don't know Jesus are strangers. Namely, it is that of evangelism. For God has entrusted to us the message of good news which offers life to the dead, release to the captives, forgiveness to the condemned. The message of reconciliation has been given to us. And it's not just reconciliation amongst people. It's reconciliation between God and man and between all peoples. So we remember, right? We remember Jesus' work on our behalf and we treasure it and we enjoy it and we ask God to show us that we might see it rightly as we should. And remember that all that Jesus did, not just for us, but the implications of that for our relationships with others. And we trust that as God has reconciled us to him, he longs to reconcile us to one another. And so we join him in that process, right? Not just by like 
caring about diversity or something like that as its end, but rather we join him in doing that because we long to preach peace to all peoples, as Jesus did. That we would be a people built up for God, a temple by which he dwells and shows the world what he's like. That's the invitation of God's people he's given us. That's like the sparkliness of the gospel that we would see this morning. It's not just good news for us and God, it's good news between us and everyone else. That Jesus would renew and redeem and reconcile and restore all things. And so we join him in that. Let me pray. God, thank you that, God, we're so grateful like, that you would reconcile us back to you. When we hated you and when we hated others, God, you chose that you would make us new people with new hearts and new desires and new purposes. Like, that's not something we deserve. That's definitely not something we earned. God, but it's something we are incredibly grateful for. And so we pray as well, God, that we wouldn't just be, like, we wouldn't just see the, the good news about the gospel as only between us and you, but we would see the good news about the gospel as restoring our relationships with others. So might we pursue you and reconciliation with you above all others, leading to reconciliation amongst all peoples. Amen.